I want to make a statement uh, which I believe is a truth, and that is that the world admires ambition. The world admires ambition, and it's true because the world promotes ambition. It celebrates ambition, and the definition of ambition is a strong desire uh, to achieve something or to do something. But usually it's a negative for, for it is often a desire for power or for fame or riches or social standing or to attain some goal or inspiration that you have. Uh, and it is often to gain something or to advance yourself in some way, to, to have what you think will make you happy. Hence, it is often selfish ambition. And people lie and cheat and steal and slander and gossip and plot and run over all kinds of people to advance their ambition. I don't have to tell you how cutthroat and political people can be at the workplace. I don't have to tell you that, trying to score points with the boss, right? To make themselves look good or make someone else not look good. And people sell their souls, so to speak, to reach their goals. They'll compromise their morals. They'll settle for things they know that are wrong. They'll rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. They'll hurt their family and friends just to get ahead, to be the best or to be on top of whatever their field is. As a young man, Bill Gates' ambition was to be the richest man in the world. The richest man in the world. And he actually achieved that in 1992 when he was worth $7 billion. One man said, ambition is the path to success and persistence is the vehicle you arrive in. Another man said, comfort kills ambition. And yet another said, when ambition is greater than your fear, then your life will be bigger than your dream. So, when we think of ambition, we associate it with words like blind, proud, self-centered, insensitive, careless, ruthless, scrupulous. We think of people who will do anything or do whatever it takes to gain their goal. And we even see that with the apostles James and John, do we not? When they wanted to have the two best seats in the kingdom, right? They wanted the two best seats in the kingdom. They wanted to sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand. Uh, So they sent their mother to ask him for it. And Jesus knew that this is the way of the world, and even his own people could be prone to this. So he said to his disciples in John and Matthew 20, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, right? Those who are up over people, they, they lorded over those under them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. In other words, whoever's going to rise up, go down. The way to go up is humility, And he said in Matthew 8, 20, to those who thought that following him would somehow advance them in some way, he said this, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So in a real sense, ambition is a negative, but not always. But not always. There is indeed a noble ambition. Like in in 1 Timothy 3, 1, where Paul said, if a man desires the position of an elder... He desires a good work. Like Romans 15, 20, where Paul said his ambition was to preach the gospel. Now in our text today, he says it is his aim or his ambition, same word, to always be pleasing to God. And I would look, I want to look at verses 9 to 11 of this chapter 5 in a sermon titled A Holy Ambition using three points. The great aim, the great assessment, and the great appeal. The great aim, the great assessment, the great appeal. Let's look at the great aim in verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And he starts with the word therefore, and therefore means in light of the fact that, that I am at home in the body and absent with the Lord, or if I am absent from the body and present with the Lord, or if I am standing here when the Lord returns, in light of all of that, it is my aim, my great aim, to please the Lord. Whether I have a lot of time here or a little time here, I want to please the Lord. If I have breath in my lungs, I want to please the Lord. If my earthen vessel is filled with cracks and they're getting wider and wider, I want to please the Lord. 
That's why he said in Philippians 1.20, while awaiting trial in Rome to determine whether he would live or die, he said, my earnest expectation and hope is that in nothing shall I be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So he wanted to please God and how he handled himself, whether he was sentenced to death or whether he was let go. Talking about his refusal to budge off the gospel, he said in Galatians 1.10, for, for, for do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So he pleases God above all, even if that doesn't please other people. He told the saints in 1 Thessalonians 4 to walk in such a way as to please God. He said in Romans 15, 20 that he made it his aim to preach the gospel where Christ had not been preached. So Paul's aim was to please God. And the word aim is in the present tense and that means he always wants to please God. It's not just once or twice or now, but not tomorrow or the next day. Always. And we should always constantly be desiring to please him. Uh, and to make something your aim implies, implies to be intentional about it, right? To make something your aim means you're intentional about it. A person whose aim is to excel in a sport, they practice a lot. They practice a lot. A person whose aim is to be a politician, they campaign a lot. And if we as Christians want to please God, and we should, we need to make it our aim. We need to make it our aim. It has to be top priority in our lives. And and odds odds are, we're probably not pleasing him if it's not our aim to please him. If it's not intentional, we're probably not. So it was Paul's aim to please God in any circumstance in life. And do we not want to please those whom we love? Do we not want to please our spouse? I would hope we would all say yes to that one. Do we not want to please our parents? Do we not want to please our children? Do we not want to bless them? Well, if we want to please those whom we love, surely we should want to please the Lord whom we love more than all, right? Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So with all of our being, we should love God. And he said in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, I have to have top slot. I got to have throne of the heart. Certainly you love other people, but I have to have, I have to be number one. Because if I'm not number one, I'm not number anything. You see, now that the Lord has captured our hearts, now that he has made us new creations, we go from worldly, right, and selfish ambitions to, to kingdom ambitions, right, like pleasing God. No longer are we living to please self, but now we are governed by the Holy Spirit who abides in us and we want to please God. We want to please God. The world says, go out, go out and and be the best you can be. While the Lord says in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. The world says, you should desire to have more than your neighbor. While the Lord says in Hebrews 13, be content with such things as you have. The world says live to the fullest, go for the gusto. Satisfy yourself. Where the scripture tells us in Romans 14, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Colossians 110 tells us, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Acts 10.35, Peter said, in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. And that word accepted is the same word as pleasing. So our aim, our goal, our daily endeavor is to be pleasing God, to please God. Paul said in Ephesians 5, to walk as children of light and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Discern it. And the way we discern what is pleasing to the Lord is through his word, through his word. 
which is why we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Acceptable. Which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we discern God's will uh, by giving him our lives, which is acceptable and pleasing to him. And when our minds are renewed through the word, well, that's pleasing to him. Uh, And the scriptures tell us lots of ways that we are pleasing to God. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're pleasing to him when we are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We please him when we die to self. When we die to self, Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone desires to come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So when we choose his way over our way, we please him. We please him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, and now comes the natural response, if you love me, if A is true, then B is going to be true, and what is B? You keep my commandments. That's the natural response to love. You keep my commandments. We please him, as 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, when like a soldier we do not entangle ourselves in the affairs of this world, but are solely committed to our leader's orders. So when we live as if God alone is our audience, we please him. When his will becomes our will, even though it is contrary to everybody else's will around us, we please him. We please him when we pray for his glory. When, When we pray for the advancement of his kingdom and for the good of his people. Solomon prayed for wisdom to lead God's people. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that that the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. He wasn't asking a selfish prayer. God said, ask what you want. What do you want? You want riches? You want long life? You want peace? You know what I need, Lord? Is I need wisdom. Wisdom to lead your people. That pleases me. And because that pleases me, I'm going to give you those other things too. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, it pleases God when we share the gospel that we've been entrusted with. It pleases him when we use our money and our resources to bless others. In Philippians chapter Paul, listen to what Paul said. And he's in jail for the first time. He's in, in a Roman prison under house arrest. He said, I have all in abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I'm in prison. I can't, I have no resources here, and you guys are sending me stuff. You're sending me money and goods. Guess what? Well-pleasing to God. So when you give to further his kingdom and to sustain his his saints, It's an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And we please him by trusting him that he is sovereign in all of our difficulties and trials. It is pleasing to him and we say, Lord, I don't have any clue how this is going to work out. I know it's hard. I'm struggling greatly. And it seems to me I I would have never chosen this, but you have. And it's your will that I'm here now. And I trust that you're in control of that. That's pleasing, right? That's pleasing to God. That's saying you're sovereign and I'm not. We please him by not looking at what is seen, but what is unseen, by setting our minds on things above, not on the earth. We please him by living like pilgrims and sojourners in this world, like we're just passing through, who are looking forward to going home one day, our home in heaven. We please him by standing up for him in his word. Not that he needs us to do that, but that we stand on truth in a world that wants to shut him out and shut out his word. Back in the year 2000, I was working for an agency and they hired this new creative director and this guy was a really cool and hip guy, came from England. He had, he had bleach blonde hair spiked all over the place and all kinds of things sticking out of him. Uh, and he wanted to meet with every single creative person in the agency and there were about 70 of us. And he wanted 15 minutes with each one of us individually. And he was asking questions like, what's your goal? What's your desire? What do you want to get out of from working here? What's your aim? What's your ambition? Eh, people were saying things like, I want to win all kinds of creative awards. I want to put the agency on the map. 
I want us to be a top creative agency and on and on and on. Well, when I got my 15 minutes, he asked me those questions as well. And I said, my aim was to glorify Jesus Christ and how I did my job. If you could have been a fly on the wall, you could have, <laughs> I can only tell you how that went. So he asked me, so he said to me, so you're working for Jesus and not for us? And I said, no. I said, because I work for Jesus, that drives me to be the best worker I can be for the agency. One year later, he fired me. <laughs> the point is, my aim was not just to make money, but to live and work for Christ. And I couldn't betray that. I couldn't go in there and just fluff my way through that 15 minutes. I had to be honest with the guy, and I prayed a lot about it. Now, the reason any of us wants to please God is because God has put his spirit in us and he, he gives us the desire to please him. This isn't a natural thing with us. It's not at all natural, right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here it is. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in you and me so that we want to please him, that we want to live for him. So it is the Spirit of God who gives us the desire and then the ability to labor for the Lord. It is the Spirit of God who has given us the gift of faith. And we know from Hebrews 11 that without faith, it is impossible to do what? If Shipsy was here, he'd have it to please God. It is impossible to please God without faith, which is why unbelievers can't please God because they never do anything with a motive to glorify God. They just can't. Speaking of the unsaved, Paul said this in Romans 8, 7, and 8. He said that the carnal mind, that's the unsaved person, is enmity against God. It's at war with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, unsaved, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God. Now let me say this. That living a life that aims to please God may cost you may cost you friendships. You may be amen in these right now. may cost you friendships. may cost you job opportunities. may cost you money. Invite to events. It may cost you ridicule. may cost you your goals or dreams or hope in this life. It may even cost you your life. But if pleasing God, if pleasing God cost you something, in the end, you are not a loser. For you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so we see, first of all, the great aim. Secondly, the great assessment. Verse 10, the great assessment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, one of the reasons... One of the reasons Paul's aim is to please God is because he knows that all believers must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not an easy verse to interpret, and the commentators really differ on this greatly. And to be honest, I wasn't really sure what I thought about this until I wrestled with this for many, many, many hours. Uh, and, And the first thing we need to ask is this. Is this the final judgment. Is this the final judgment? Is this the judgment where, where men's sins are put before them and they are cast into hell for their sins? Right? Is this judgment for believers and unbelievers? And the answer is no, no, and no. How's that, Pastor? Let me tell you. There are two judgments in the Bible, one for believers and one for unbelievers. And, and the believer's judgment is at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, uh, which we also read about in Romans 14.10, where Paul says, why do you judge your brother? He's talking to believers. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But there is also, there is also another judgment, a judgment for, for unbelievers, and that is at the great white throne of judgment. Judgment seat of Christ great white throne of judgment. There's a second one. Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, 
standing before God, and the books, plural, were opened. And then we read about this judgment in Revelation 6, 15 to 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, that's everybody, that's all the unsaved, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From what? From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's, of course, Christ. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So there is an eternal judgment for all unbelievers. And there is a judgment for all believers, which happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Does that make sense? It's important that we get that there's two of them here. And the judgment seat of Christ uh, in Greek is called the Bema, B-E-M-A. Sounds like a car, but it's not. Bema. Uh, and and it, it was a seat or a platform that some governing official would sit on to render a verdict. So Pilate, Pontius Pilate, sat on the Bema seat when he judged Jesus, which we read in Matthew 27, 19. Paul was brought before the Bema seat of Gallio in Acts 18. Now, the next question we need to ask is, why are believers being judged? Why are we being judged? Are we judged for our sin? Or maybe from sins we've committed in ignorance? And the answer is absolutely not. No. Our sins, every one of them, were judged at the cross, right? Every single one of them. Nothing was left right there. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, which we just sang, he was saying that all of our sins were paid for and forgiven forever. He cleaned the slate, washed them all away, gone forever. As far as the east is from the west, evidenced by the fact. What's the evidence? How do we know that that happened when Jesus died? How do we know that all of our sins were paid for? Well, the resurrection. God's not resurrecting him if there's still sin that was unpaid for. If the Holy One is still carrying unholy sin upon him, he's he's not coming up, right? The resurrection is God's seal of approval, satisfaction, guaranteed everything was paid for, every sin. Because again, if he had left some undone or unpaid for, today he'd still be in the grave. He'd be like Muhammad or Buddha or any other religious person who's ever lived. He'd still be dead. And do we not read in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, that's judgment, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is there now no hell, no judgment, no wrath of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did not Jesus say in John 3.18, he who believes in me is not condemned. No condemnation. Did he not say in John 5.24 that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. You have it now. And shall not come into judgment So you're not going to get judgment because I've been judged for you, right? But as passed from death into life. You have passed from death into life. That's it. And will not Paul say in this chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, seven verses later, that if anyone is in Christ, he is, is a new creation. So our sins were fully paid for at the cross where Jesus absorbed our hell for us where he suffered our damnation for us. And let us not forget that that every saint who has died before Jesus returns is already in heaven with him. They're already there. Every single saint who has ever died before us, they're they're there now. They're there now. They're there in their soul. And and as they, they await his return, they will receive his resurrected body when he does return. So like the thief on the cross, they are all in paradise, right now with Christ. They are all enjoying sinless fellowship in the presence of the glorified Christ. So then how could they be with Christ now and at some later point have to stand before him to be judged for their sins? Right? That's just illogical totally. Let me say that again. How could the saints right now in heaven, right now in heaven, be with Christ right now and at some later point have to stand before him to be judged for their sins? Well, they don't. But the question is, 
then what is this judgment? What is this judgment? And the answer is, it is a judgment of works done in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul helps us to understand this from the scriptures we read in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 to 15. There Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it'll be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So not only ministers, which Paul is, of course, but all Christians are building upon the foundation, which is Christ. We're all laboring in his kingdom, in the sphere that God has put us, with the gifts he has given us. And verse 12 says that we build with six different materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Verse 13 says that in the end, that our works will be... Will, will, will be put under fire to see what was of value and what was of no value, to see what lasted and what didn't last. Because fire incinerates wood, hay, and straw. But not gold, nor silver, nor precious stones, uh, because when they go through the fire, what happens? They become purified, right? The dross or the, 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 the unnecessary stuff burn, is burned away. And good... Oh, let me go backtrack for a second. So it is fire or the judgment seat of Christ which determines what our works on earth here were, whether they were good or bad. And good means things that were pleasing to God, things with an eternal perspective. And bad, and this is an important word here, bad, bad, um, the one that, this is a word that many people seem to get thrown by, if you will, because bad can mean evil. Bad can mean evil. But it can also mean worthless, useless, of no value. Evil, worthless, useless, of no value. And if you take it for evil, as some do, then you're saying we're being judged for evil, and evil is sin. Anything that is evil is sin, and we know that from Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Right? Jesus said in, in Mark 7 that evil thoughts come from the heart right? and defile a man. That's sin. So, so, so bad can't mean evil here. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it must mean worthless, useless, of no value. So when Christ returns and all of his people stand before him as he sits on the bema seat, we will see what was, what was valuable and useful in what we did and what was not. And the things that weren't, the wood, the hay, and the straw, doesn't mean they were sinful. It just means they were not useful. They were not useful in the kingdom. Right? Not that they were wrongful in and of themselves. Right? Not that. But they just weren't useful in advancing Christ's church. Uh, and is this not much of what life is when you think about it? Right? Going to a ball game. Doing a crossword puzzle. Making brownies. Right? Fixing a bike chain. Walking the dog a couple of times a day. Right? Washing dishes, reading a novel, taking selfies, and on and on and on and on. None of those things are evil in and of themselves. They're just wood, hay, and straw. They have no value eternally. But here's the amazing thing about all of that. Here's how the wood, the hay, and the straw can be turned to gold, silver, and precious stones. When you do them or think about them with a godly mindset. With a godly mindset. So maybe when you're doing the dishes... You're singing hymns, or if you're like my wife, you've got verse, verses plastered all over the house, and you're reading a verse while you're sitting there scrubbing, right? Uh, or when, when you give a ride to someone to the doctor, you're encouraging them in the things of God. 
You're talking spiritual things in a very unspiritual scenario, so to speak. Or when you're paying the cashier, you give them a gospel track. You say a word about the things of God. When you're laying at the beach, you're marveling at this beautiful creation and you're saying, Lord, this is beautiful. The sound of the water coming in and the sun going through and the birds flying over, it's just beautiful. Look at the expanse when your heart is just filled with God in the most mundane scenarios. I'm telling you, that's gold, silver, and precious stones right there. Even though you're doing something that could be a worthless situation. It could be just hay and straw and stubble right there, but no. No, because of your mind and your heart, it's made it gold, silver, and precious stones. So anything you do or think or say that is heavenly-minded is good. It's, it's a good work. And that makes it gold, silver, and precious stones. And let us remember the only reason that, that, that any of us can do anything good is because God has given us a new heart that longs to do good things. And I really believe, I really believe that we will be very surprised on that day, on that day, on, at that Bema seat, when we see just how much good we really did. I really believe that because we really don't think about what we do for Christ. Uh, we don't, I don't know, I don't think about it. Uh, and, and, and we don't, you know, think about, about him and how we do things. You know, it's just, it's just natural for the child of God to do these things. It's just natural. It comes out of us. Because we're a new creation. And out of a new creation comes new things. Right? And it becomes natural to us. It would be like the parable. It's like the parable of, of the sheep and the goat in Matthew 25. And Jesus is talking about the end times here. Right? When Jesus says to the sheep on his right hand, and all the believers, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Now here's what they say. All right? They're like baffled here. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Right? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Right? We, when do we do those things? I, that really, I can't even think about it. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. Christians don't keep a scorecard. Oh, I drove this guy there. I brought them a meal. I let him sleep over my house. Oh, I helped them there. Pushed in the chair. Right? They were in the hospital. I went to give a visit. Check, 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 check. Right? We don't do those things. It's second nature to them. It should be second nature to us, loving, caring, feeding, visiting, giving. That's all part of our lives. It's the new you. It's the new me, right? Because Christ is in us, he comes out in all kinds of ways. And the hope is, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more gold and silver and precious stones keep coming from us. We just become a a ton of metal, so to speak. Right? We just keep producing them. And the question is, is your life filled with, is it filled with wood, hay, and straw? Is it filled with that? With a little bit of gold, silver, and precious stones? Or are the, the gold, the silver, and precious stones, I think they keep growing, right? Like what's happening in your life? What's it filled with? Useless stuff? Is your life all about you? your time, your money, your stuff, you're this, you're that, you're this, or are you thinking about things above and doing those things on things above? That determines, right? Now the next question is, what are they receiving? For Paul says that they may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And some say, well, these are rewards which the Lord is going to deal out in heaven, Right? Uh, and, and so the more you did for Christ here, right, the greater your rewards in heaven. And there are many theories, many theories on what the rewards are, but the Bible doesn't tell us if there are a multitude of rewards. It just doesn't tell us. And guys have speculated, and they write books on speculation, but you, you, you can't square it in Scripture. And some say, we all get the same reward, which is what I would say. Oh, pastor, I can't believe you said that. Uh, right? No. Hear me out. 
I, I believe we all get the same reward. Uh, whether we're saved for three hours, like the thief on the cross, or for a hundred years. Whether we're a missionary or a mailman. And let me tell you why I think so. First off, every single time the word reward is used in the New Testament, every single time it is always used in the singular, never in the plural. Never in the plural. It's always used in the singular. It's never rewards. So I'll give you just two quick examples, and there are many. So in Revelation twenty-two twelve, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward, singular, is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Hebrews eleven twenty-six says, Moses esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward, not the rewards, a reward. Jesus told those who were persecuted for his sake in Matthew 12, 5, 12, to rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Uh, and the reward is exactly what Paul was longing for. Because in verses 1 to 4 of this chapter, uh, he, it's what he wants, which is to be given a building from God, a house not made with hands, to be clothed with his habitation from heaven. So, so it is to be given a resurrected, glorified body, united with his soul in the presence of Jesus forever. He told the saints in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, that whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive, here it is, the reward of the inheritance. The reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. And what's the inheritance? That's eternal life with Christ, which Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, and kept for us in heaven. It's as Paul said in Romans 2, verses 6 to 8, that Jesus will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life, here's the rendering, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. They get an eternal life. Turn with me, if you will. I want to show you one more. And there were more. Turn to Romans chapter 2. I'm sorry, Mark 10. Turn to Mark 10. I want to show you this one. Mark 10. And, and the, um, the context here is the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, wants to know how to have eternal life. Jesus knows that this man is greedy and, 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 uh, and, and his idol is money. Uh, and so he, Jesus tells him, you know, then keep the commands like five down. In other words, you know, man to man, don't lie, don't hate, don't steal. And he says, I've done all of those things. And then he says, what do I lack? And Jesus says, well, you know, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And it says the guy walked away sorrowful because he had many riches. All right. And so he walks away sorrowful and, and Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible. Then, oh, so the apostles, well, who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, well, then quite honestly, none of us can be saved because they had the view that the richer you were, the more blessed you were, the closer you were to heaven. And so, Jesus, so the disciples said, who can be saved? Jesus answered and said to them, this is verse 27, with men it is impossible, uh, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. All right, so then this, here we go in verse 28 for the question. Peter, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and folly. What about us? Like, what about us? We've left everything. This guy can't be saved and he's loaded. Well, what about us? We left our, our homes, our jobs, and everything. Here's Jesus' answer in verse 29 and 30. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, right now. And he goes, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. You're going to get all of this now. And in the age to come, what are we getting? Eternal life. There it is. There it is. Here's what we're getting. Eternal life. So eternal, so, so, so eternal life and glory with Christ, that is the reward. Oh, I want more. I want a better seat. I want a better job. I want to get closer. Really? You want something more? You need something more? The Bible doesn't say there's something more. It just says there is a reward, singular. It's singular. 
So eternal life is the reward with Christ. And truthfully, quite honestly, like it doesn't get better than that. You can't add to that. You just can't. What greater gift or reward could God give us than life in glory with his son? I I say nothing. Nothing. That's the goal. All right. So we see the great aim, the great assessment, and finally, the great appeal. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Paul says he makes it his aim to please God for uh, we're all going to have to stand before him right, at the Bema seat. But now he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And this verse can mean one of two things and they both would be absolutely correct. Can mean one of two things and commentators are there and they're there and they, they, they mingle them. And I'm going to tell you what they could mean and you could choose. Uh, I have a leaning, but I'm going to tell you both because I think they, they're both important. All right? It can mean one of two things. And one would be knowing the wrath of God knowing the judgment of God, knowing his hatred for sin and his fierce anger against it. We persuade men. We persuade men to repent of their sins. We persuade them to turn from their iniquity and turn to Christ. Because we know, as Hebrews 12, 29 says, God is a consuming fire. And we know from Hebrews 10, 31 that it is a fearful thing. It is a very fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we know, as Isaiah 33, 14 asks, who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell in everlasting burnings? So we persuade men to believe in the gospel, to think about their eternal destiny, and we persuade them by not only telling them about the judgment of God, which we must, but also about his love and mercy, also about his abundant grace found in the cross. We persuade them that Christ came to save sinners and that he died for their sins and rose again, verifying that he did just that. We persuade men to flee from the wrath to come and to flee to Christ, who is the only safe haven, who is the only city of refuge, if you will. And truly, every Christian should be about this business of persuading men. We should all be persuading men and women and children that they need to be saved. This isn't, oh, the pastor should do it. Oh, you got a couple of men, let them do it, right? No, we all do this. This is all our task. I mean, none of us are like exempt from this. We do it in the sphere God has given us, but we should all be doing that. We persuade them that Christ came to save sinners. We persuade them of that. So the first possible meaning, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, is that we persuade them of the wrath to come. The second possible meaning, and maybe the one that better fits this context, is that Paul is trying to persuade the Corinthians that he and his ministry are authentic, that God has called him to be an apostle and he preaches the gospel. Uh, and y- y- you see what's going on is, is, is that fueled by these false teachers and false apostles in, the, in Corinth, the Corinthian believers have doubted Paul's motives and they've doubted his ministry besides his integrity. They wanted to see letters of recommendation from him and they were buying into the lies and slander of these charlatans and ultimately they questioned the very gospel that he preached. Now when he says knowing the terror of the Lord, terror in this scenario doesn't mean dread but rather, and this is what the word could mean, a reverential fear. A reverential fear. This is an awe. An absolute awe of God. Uh, and, And Paul has an absolute awe of God Uh, And because he does, he wants to persuade others that his ministry has been totally of God, that he is a man of integrity, that he has done nothing for selfish gain or to make a name for himself. And that is, he's given his very heart and his life for the good of the saints and for the advancement of the gospel. Well, then he says, but we are well known to God. Uh, and, And so God knows my motives. He knows my desires. He knows I'm sold out for him. And he knows that I do all things to glorify him. Uh, and, and we too are well known to God. Listen, he knows that our hearts beat for him. He knows what our hearts beat for. He knows what our ambitions are. He knows the good we do and he knows the useless stuff that we're about. He knows those things. He knows those things. Well, Paul says, God knows me well and I also trust I am well known in your consciences. Uh, meaning, you've seen my ministry You've heard my teaching. I was with you for 18 months, day and night, laboring for you. And you know the, the, the reason that you're even saved is because you believe the very gospel that I came and preached to you. So 
deep down in your consciences, you know what kind of man I am. You know the man, the man I've been. How I have done all things for the sake of your souls and how I have loved you and served you. And because I have such a high regard and a reverential fear of the Lord, I am persuading you of this. So you've got a lot of options going on there. Well, in closing, let me ask you one question and leave you with one word of encouragement. And the question is this. Is there anything in your life today, right now, that you know is not well-pleasing to the Lord? Is there anything in your life right now, and don't raise your hand and say, hey, I'm doing this, that, nothing. Is there anything that you know in your life right now that is not, that is not well-pleasing to the Lord? Anything. Are there things you're watching on TV or the internet or your iPhone or smartphone, whatever it is, that you know he's not well pleased with that? You know he's not well pleased with that. Is the way you treat your spouse well pleasing to the Lord? Is he pleased with how you treat your wife? Wives, is he treat with how you treat your husband? Is he pleased with how you submit to his leadership? Is he pleased with how you're raising your kids? Is he pleased with how you treat the saints? how we treat each other? Is he pleased that you're, you're, we're loving one another? Or are there grudges and unforgiveness and anger and separation going on? Is he pleased at how you do your job? Is that well pleasing to him? When you go to work tomorrow, is he going to be well pleased with how you're doing that job? Or are you complaining and kvetching? That's complaining in another language. Is your commitment to this church How you serve in this church, is it well-pleasing to the Lord? Is he well-pleased with your commitment to Grace Baptist Church? Again, he knows. He knows. Is it well-pleasing? Is he well-pleased with the time you spend with him? Devotional time, reading your Bible, praying, meditating. Is it pleasing to him? Is he well-pleased with your giving? We're going to see this in chapters 8 and 9 of this book. He talks all about giving. Right? Is he, is he going to be well-pleased when that plate goes around, when it comes to you? Is he well-pleased? See, he knows the heart. He knows the heart. If you know there is an area of your life that the Lord is not well-pleased with, then you need to ask him for forgiveness and you need to change and become well-pleasing. You need, you need his grace, right? Lord, help me. So the thing is, search your own heart. I gave you lots of scenarios. There's like 10 dozen more that I I probably don't even know about. Is he well pleased? And if not, search your heart, ask for forgiveness, and, and beg him to help you to become well pleasing. Now, word of encouragement is this. If God wasn't well pleased to make his son an offering for us, we could never be well pleasing to God. If God were not well pleased to make his son an offering for our sins, we could never be well pleasing to God. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It pleased God to condemn his son in our place. It pleased him to put our sins on his son and then punish him for all of our sins. You realize that it it wasn't like, oh, I can't believe I got to do this. It wasn't agony for God. He pleased him to do it. It pleased him to put him through the agonies of Calvary for enemies like you and me because that's what we were. We were enemies. We were enemies of God, but it pleased God to make us friends, to take away the enmity by putting our sin on his son and punishing him for what separated us from God. It pleased It pleased him to allow his son to be judged at the bema seat of men so that we could stand before the bema seat of Christ. We're not standing before that white throne of judgment. You know that. Because that's taken away in Christ. But we stand before the bema seat and that's because Christ stood before the bema seat of men. Now listen, if you're not a Christian today, please know this. Please know you will not appear before the the bema seat. You will not appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will be at the great white throne of judgment. And I don't care if you're a kid, 10, 12, 15, or you're 91. There's only one of us here. right? I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you've been in this building for 10 years or you've been a quote-unquote Christian for 50. If you're not truly born again, then you are at the great white throne of judgment. That's where you'll be. Uh, and, and 
And that should cause great terror. That should cause genuine fear and terror in the heart. Right? That should do that. Because of all of those wrath of God verses I already read, and believe me, there's about a dozen or two more that we didn't even look at, they will become real. That'll become real forever. And your only hope, your only escape is to trust in Christ, to thrust yourself upon Christ, to confess that you're a sinner before him and plead with him for the forgiveness of your sins and trust him for them. Trust that when he was on the cross, your sins were being paid for one by one by one by one. And when he said it was finished, God said, done with that sinner's sins forever. And believe it. And live like it. And live like it. Because I'm telling you, if you humble yourself before him today, even today, if you truly humble yourself before him, he will be well pleased with you and he will save you. I hope you believe that. I hope you do that. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge how weak and frail we are and how often we miss the mark. But we pray all the more that we would be pleasing to you. We pray all the more that the wood and the hay and the straw would be turned into gold and silver and precious stones. And oh, how we look forward to the day that we're with Christ forevermore in a state of perfect, sinless glory. And Lord, would you encourage us and help us to see our sin where we don't please you, please convict us, shake us in our very souls that we don't want to displease you, we want to please you, oh God. It doesn't make a difference what the world thinks, but it makes every difference what you think. And Lord, for the souls or souls sitting here or watching this online now that is not truly born again, show them what awaits them is a white throne of judgment. And there'll be no mercy and there'll be no grace, but there'll be unfiltered fury and wrath, which is what sin deserves, oh God. But we pray that you would change hearts even today to run to Christ, to run to our only refuge, and in him we can find hope and peace and forgiveness and love and great joy. Lord, would you do that for your great honor and your great glory? In Jesus' name, amen.